Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, understanding poverty and particularly child poverty in America. An expansion of the child tax credit earlier this year shone a bright light on the nature of poverty, particularly among America's children. The American Rescue Plan raised the minimum child tax credit to $3,000 or $3,600 per child, depending on age. During 2021, estimates began to pour in about the number of American children who had been lifted out of poverty because of this new approach. Estimates ranged from 3 million up to a potential of even 5 million. But what was really stunning was the growing understanding that in America, nearly 11 million children are poor. That's one in seven of our children. And that makes up almost one third of all people living in poverty in this country. Catherine Ann Edwards is an economist at the RAND Corporation and a professor at the Party RAND Graduate School. Her research spans diverse areas of public policy, including unemployment insurance, STEM research and education, the women's labor supply, challenges in retirement, and labor market issues. As the Senate debated whether to continue making higher child tax credit payments an ongoing reality in America back in the end of 2021, Dr. Edwards sent a series of tweets because that's how we talk to one another these days is on Twitter. Dr. Edwards sent a series of tweets explaining all kinds of features of poverty in America that many of us had never really considered before. So I thought that today on Great Ideas, it would be really helpful to our listeners to get these kinds of insights, to bring them to everybody who listens to the show. And so Dr. Edwards, welcome to Great Ideas. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I know it's a bummer to start off with a conversation about poor children. It's not exactly a it's not exactly a fun topic. I learned a lot in the course of reading not only your Twitter thread but some of the rest of your work and I don't know. It, to me, it, it presented just a different and, and maybe a somewhat better picture of poverty in general and of poverty among children than I had gone into it in mind. So let's just start out. You, from a 30,000 foot level, you started out in your Twitter thread explaining something about poverty that I don't think most people realize, which is that it's not for most people chronic. What did you mean? What what were you trying to get across there? And what do you wish people understood better about poverty? Poverty has a definition. It is having cash income below a certain threshold that we have decided means poor. So people who fall, who have household incomes that fall below that threshold, they are poor people in the U.S. But it's a very technical, dry definition. But culturally, we think of poverty as like a permanent multi-generational state. So think of the movie Winter's Bone, right? Poor in rural areas. Think of Eight Mile, right? Poor in urban areas where we think of kind of an entrenched permanent underclass of people who are almost a fixed point of poverty. That's very misrepresentative of poverty in America. And in fact, less than 3% of Americans are poor consistently year over year, right? So the- Less than 3%. 
So the Census Bureau has done an analysis of over a four year period, and they found that less than 3% of Americans were poor four years in a row. And that those kind of poor in each of the four years of the study made up fewer than 10% of all people in poverty. That's because most Americans have volatility in their income. Your income from month to month can vary based on how your job went, the number of shifts you got, if you got overtime, if you lost your job, if you took a break between jobs, and that a lot of households, their income will fall below poverty. And in fact, the Census Bureau found that over this four-year period, over a third of Americans would be poor for at least two months. Over a third of Americans would be poor for at least two months. That's that's actually kind of shocking. That I I mean we we think I think most of us think about poor people unless we ourselves are poor. I'm very fortunate not to think of myself that way. We think it just as you described. We think of poor people as sort of group a a a, a set defined group. You're saying that almost a third of us kind of flit in and out of that category. Well, it's, it's almost a third of us have. A, a severe enough disruption in income that it falls below the threshold, right? It's a technical definition. So maybe I don't feel poor. Maybe I don't think of myself as poor. But if the Census Bureau came knocking on my door and asked me where the money came from that month, they would say, surprise, Catherine, you were, you were poor this month. And so it's, it's so, now that makes it sound like it doesn't have an effect, that it doesn't have consequences. But that's not true either. It, it matters that you have these income volatility that you have a disruption to you, the stability of your income. But what I think is lost on most Americans is that the you know, median duration of a poverty spell is under a year. It's around 11 months. So about half of people who fall into poverty will come right back out again within a year. And that this kind of attrition out of poverty is pretty constant is that the, the, it's really rare for people to stay in it for such a long period, like four years, which is why people who are in it for so long are a really small share of people in poverty. The implications of this are that when we, when we think of poverty, we're not thinking of experience that can affect a lot of people. And we're not thinking of causes or consequences that could be addressed by the same policy, right? The consequence of someone falling into poverty for 11 months and the consequence of someone falling into poverty for 11 years, they're different. And the causes are probably different as well. And so when we think of, this is what happens with something like the child tax credit is that we are motivated and in some ways really at odds with a small set of people who we characterize as poor at the cost of not really examining or addressing the majority of poor people who aren't poor for that long. Wow. That is, I mean, that was really the heart of it. And the thing that, that grabbed my attention. And even then I hadn't really retained the, just the numbers involved. And that one third is, is, is really, it's an attention grabber. And I see exactly what you mean, that we kind of, we bring the wrong movie metaphor to everything. We, we do think of, because look, Hollywood paints a picture of kind of enduring intergenerational poverty, but it's, it sounds like more a matter of, uh, there's the oft-cited statistic that 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, meaning that they, they basically have income and they pay their bills. And they cycle to the next month and they cycle to the next month. And if there's any interruption in that income stream, then they can't pay their bills 
and they fall into poverty. Although that statistic is often incorrectly interpreted as well. So this was based on a lot of a lot of this is based on a survey that is asked by the Federal Reserve in a survey called the Shed. And what they ask is, can you meet an unexpected $400 expense in cash? Depending on the you know, unemployment rate at the time, when they first asked this question, it was over half of households said no. And it and then as as the economy got better and we moved away further away from the Great Recession, it, it fell to around 40%. That is that should not be interpreted as most 40% of American households are one car payment away from economic ruin, because the next question was, well, if you didn't have cash, what would you do? And that started to give insights into the strategy that households have in order to meet, in order to make it work. I'm sure strategies that are everyone listening would be familiar with, you know, you put it on a credit card that was the lowest interest when you had. You would borrow it from a family member or a parent or a sibling. You would pick up an extra shift or maybe drive an Uber for a while. You would skip one bill in order to pay off this expense and then go back to that bill later. It's There's so much more fragility, but then strategy behind fragility that we know Americans employ. That doesn't make any of those strategies preferred to having $500 in savings, but there are things that Americans will do to make it work. I see. So it it's more, it's more a picture that you're painting of more Americans than we think of are in a precarious situation rather than a chronic situation. You actually in again, I keep going back to a Twitter thread, sort of the way that I would frequently say in your book, Dr. Edwards. But again, we're in the modern we're in the modern world. So we read each other's Twitter threads in your Twitter thread. You actually laid out what you call the hospital metaphor as a way to picture the difference in, in, in the two the two kinds of conditions that we, that we're thinking about here, either a lot of chronic poverty versus temporary poverty. Do, do you want to just lay out what that metaphor is? That might be helpful for, for people. Sure. So this is a metaphor used to describe duration. So if I were to ask you, how long is the average hospital stay? Just over a two-week period, and you went down to your nearest hospital in the first week, right? You sit at the entrance, and you mark everyone coming in, and you mark everyone coming out, and you just keep a log of all their time. And then there's a snowstorm, and it's cold, and you're like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not sitting outside today. And so the second week, you just decide to go in and ask everyone you see in the hospital how long they've been inside. Your first week's estimate and your second week's estimate would be very, very different because you're sampling a different population. The conditional on being inside the hospital right? The duration would be longer than conditional on ever going in hospital. And so you're talking to two groups of people and you'll get two different estimates. So if I were to ask, if I were to just go to every room in a hospital and ask people how long they've been there, I would assume that most people spend a very long time in the hospital. But if I were to sit out the door and ask people coming in and out how long they've been inside, I would assume most people spend very little time in the hospital. So this, we use this hospital kind of bed uh, metaphor to illustrate that your, the length of poverty and the length of a spell and our understanding of it is very conditional on which poor people you're counting, people who are currently poor or people who have ever been poor. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it, it seems to me, and this is maybe a theme that we'll return to later, but that this basic understanding could be used in thinking about all kinds of policy approaches 
that we apply to deal with poverty, unemployment, bankruptcy. It used to be kind of the thinking, it was current in, in, in politics and in government to really view kind of your, your winter's bone or eight mile analogy. Ronald Reagan famously made up the, the image of a welfare queen. The idea was there are people who are not just chronically poor, but they're chronically taking advantage of government programs in order to keep themselves in that condition without working. And you see this continue to play out, not just in the, the, the welfare reform of the mid nineties, but also now as we think about Medicaid, expanded Medicaid and work requirements, it, do you see this misunderstanding of poverty and unemployment kind of infecting all kinds of areas of government policy? I think that the question you're asking is probably more personal than you realize, because it's asking, what do we think of people who need help? And that really requires some type of assessment, whether explicit or implicit in your own mind of would I ever need help? And the point of view of could I ever need help from the government? And if the answer is no, then, then, then there's something wrong with people who do. And, and the risk that you're willing to admit that you face and the help that you might need really changes your assessment of people who are currently in help. And so I, I think that part of this kind of not necessarily, I mean, yeah, in certain instances, like the welfare queen demonization of populations, but also just this instinct to mark people as other, right? There are poor people and they are different from me and they are different from us. And they're just this other part of society. It comes from your own assessment of yourself and your own risk. So I think I, I study unemployment a lot and that's, really my area of expertise uh, in the labor market is unemployed workers. And I have, it's been amazing to me to see just the depths at which people are hardworking middle-class Americans until the second they lose their job and then they are takers. And I think part of it comes from the fact that if there was someone, a worthy unemployed person, someone who worked really hard, someone who did everything right and lost their job is a really terrifying prospect for those of us who work hard and still have one, right? It's like, if, if I could work really hard and lose everything <laughs> to, in order to admit that there's an unemployed person out there that could worked really hard and lost everything, I'd have to admit that maybe my hard work is not going to insulate or prevent me from losing everything one day. And so I, I've often found that this need to separate into otherness is somewhat driven by a self-preservation. Mm -hmm. Well, and very much to that point, and again, continuing on your, your Twitter thread, but also bridging a little bit to the other part of the conversation that I, I want to get into, which is the child tax credit. Because as we record this, we're actually recording this in mid-January, people may be listening to it on the podcast for months to come. But today, right now, as we, as we speak, child tax credit is trending on Twitter. Now that's weird because the other thing that's trending on Twitter right now is Brad Pitt. Those two things are not very similar. And so that this is something that is very much on Americans' mind. It's because 36 million Americans are losing access to that expanded child tax credit payment this month. And it is, as our president once said about another policy, a BFD. This is, this is really a major impact. Now, in your Twitter thread, you did draw a link that, again, I hadn't thought of 
between the child tax credit and our misunderstanding of poverty in America. You said, for the most part, the poorest a child's parent will ever be is when they're born. Why is that? Why is it that we're, we're going to see this, this short-term poverty stretch, the cyclical poverty stretch, most for new parents? They earn the least. So if you, if you think the average age uh, of a child being born, the mom and dad are in, say, their late 20s, 25 to 30, you will earn less at 25 to 30 than you will at 45 to 50 when they leave the house, right? Because most workers hit their peak earnings between the ages of 50 and 55, right? You, you earn on average, not necessarily every year, but for the most part, you earn more as an adult, as an older adult than you do as a younger adult, but you don't have kids. You don't have your first kid when you're 55, right? You, you have kids when you're younger, when you earn less money, and then you, you end up middle-class or higher income. So I, I, I find that this is, is, when I've talked to people about this, this is something that really resonates with them, that their parents will tell them like, oh, when you were born, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment or we didn't go on vacation or our debt payments were more, we couldn't afford a mortgage for this. And that they, they will inherit kind of a, an understanding that their parents were in hardship around the time that they were born, but that by the time they go to college, their parents take vacations and they're going to retire and that the economic status of your parents is not fixed in your lifetime. And that's true for all children. The, the, for the most part, the most poor your parent will be, will be the day that you were born. And then we'll just, they'll, they'll kind of continue to see their income grow. Should they be able to continue working? And, and something like the child tax credit is really a, a smoothing uh, kind of security function for a lot of parents. I think parents will tell you that kids need stability and structure. And that doesn't just apply to discipline or food or nap time, right? That also applies to finances. And their, their least ability to apply that is when they are youngest. Well, that, again, it was just, it's the kind of thing that I think we all know without really thinking about or understanding. I mean, it's intuitively obvious when you say it. And then of course, there's all kinds of other things that I think we all know, but probably don't factor into the equation, like the interruption in career that happens for women and, and sometimes for men as, as partners as well, after a child is born and the impacts on promotion, earnings, stability of jobs, all of these things factor in. Again, it was just one of those things that when you read it, it's like, yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. And that really is the, the theme I'd like to pick up on, especially what you were just saying a moment ago about stabilization. Welcome back to Great Ideas broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I do want to thank all of our podcast listeners and all of our podcast subscribers. We have had growing numbers of podcast subscribers. We really love reaching people on the radio. And we super love reaching people on podcasts. So whether you're listening on the radio or on podcast, please make sure to subscribe. We're available anywhere you can find your podcast. And all you have to do is hit the button that says follow or subscribe. Different platforms use different things. Regardless, in this hour, we are speaking with Dr. Catherine Ann Edwards of the RAND Corporation. She's an economist who focuses on unemployment insurance, labor issues, and who recently has been writing about poverty and particularly child poverty and the role of the child tax credit in America. As we record this, we are at the point where 
36 million Americans are losing access to the expanded child tax credits that were delivered in the American Rescue Plan almost a year ago, and that have been responsible for lifting upwards of 3 million American children out of poverty. It's hard to really talk about this issue without pausing for a moment on the fact that there are 11 million American children in poverty. And just as a little editorial comment, Dr. Edwards, you were saying at the top of the show that it's an arbitrary line. We actually reset it a couple of decades ago. There was a lot of discussion about where do you set the poverty line? I remember in the Clinton administration, there was a big debate about this because some economists like you were like, well, the poverty line, as we've defined it, is is just too darn low. The fact is, if you're right above the poverty line, you are ridiculously poor. And there was reluctance to reset the poverty line because you would show statistically there, hey, now there are more Americans in poverty. No president wants that. No president wants to be responsible for, hey, now we have more people in poverty. The fact of the matter is, if you're in poverty, your income is extremely low. Your, your situation is not good. But you were, you were pointing out, and a the major theme of the first part of the show is this is not the chronic condition most of us think of it as. It is it's a cyclical, it's a temporary, it's it's the kind of thing that people fall into for, on average, I think you said 11 months, and then come out of it. And it's a condition that a third of us in America will go into in our lifetime in America. And just to connect kind of a final dot here, it's the kind of thing that's most likely to happen when people are new parents, when they're having kids, when they're relatively early in their career, when they're earning the least in their lifetime earnings cycle, and when they're having interruptions to their earnings or to their jobs or to their promotion cycle. So you put all of that together in a blender and you made a really good point in your writing and you were just starting to talk about it a moment ago that we should really think about the child tax credit differently. It's long-term income support. It's really much more about the word you used is stabilization. Tell me more about that. Why is that the right way to think about it? The question of the child tax credit is ultimately how much and to what extent we think children should be shielded from the economic you know, factors that affect their parents. The, the child tax credit at its most generous in the, in the 2021 expansion was $3,600 a year for children under six if their parents had low enough income. You cannot live on $3,600 a year. You cannot take care of a baby for $3,600 a year, not with daycare, not with formula, not with clothes, not with doctor's visits. I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's an expense that you are not meeting. There was no part of the budget that they sat down and said, okay, what part could we take care of with a tax credit? We, that's not enough for food. That's not enough for shelter. It's really not enough for any one part of the kind of itemized budget that families have, what it is, is just a cushion to provide stability because it doesn't provide adequacy. It provides stability that there's a minimum that families have should something else go wrong in a month. All of the evidence from people who received the child tax credit, who were the larger recipients who had kind of larger checks for that time, what did they spend it on? I mean, they spent it on food, shelter, electric bills, childcare, clothes, educational supplies, toys for their kids. I mean, they spent it on a little bit of everything to provide stability because your heating bill, your gas bill isn't the same in January as it is in June. Your AC bill isn't the same in February as it is in August. Your kids don't 
need books for school for the school year and new supplies in May, they need them in September. I, I joke with my family, I've never met a bigger clothes horse than my own uh, <laughs> two-year-old son who's on his like sixth wardrobe <laughs> since being born, right? They, they, these, these needs change and this money is really intended to be a stabilizing supplement and not really able to meet any single expense. But there has been pushback where people know, well, if you have multiple kids, this number can add up. Right. I mean, well, let's say you had three kids under five when you only have a household income of fifty thousand dollars a year, you're getting over ten thousand dollars more than 20 percent of your income for your children. I think I would ask, like, what's the worst case scenario of spending in that situation that three children under five have a stability that even if it is ten thousand dollars to their parents is, is the thought I think. Sometimes I think the objection is to the dollar amount rather than the purpose of the spending, where I just don't like the idea that someone got money from the government and that it's a large amount, regardless of the purpose that it's being put towards. And that if you were to ask someone, like, what kind of life could I afford on $10,000 a year with three kids, any reasonable person would tell you, you know, none. You cannot afford any type of reasonable life. You could only hopefully subsidize a better one. But I do think the dollar amount really, it, it's the sticker shock for some people, the idea that you could get that much money. Now, who already got that money before the expansion? How much did they get and how much did they earn is a whole other question. I think really it's, it's not about giving people money. It's about giving people who earn less than me money. That. And, that, and that's something, the, the idea of the objections to the policy is actually exactly where I want to go. Although I do want to note, first of all, if people want to follow you and read the kinds of things that I've been reading from you on Twitter, you're at K-E-D-S underscore economist on Twitter. And one reason listeners might want to do that is you've just revealed something very important. I have a parenting tip out there. What you want to do is you want to find parents. If you have, if you have young children, find parents whose kids are really into clothes and whose parents try to get them new clothes because what happens, those clothes become available. The best move my wife and I ever made was befriending someone whose kids go through clothes. We have an entire closet full of great clothes for our kids because of that move. I'm not sure that befriending Dr. Edwards on Twitter will give you access to that kind of a pipeline, but you can try. Speaking <laughs> well, of I, a, I don't know. I mean, I, um, I'm one of those people that just had that unlucky mark of having a spit up kid, you know, so <laughs> all our clothes were just, they were ruined. I mean, it was just, it was, I mean, I didn't even like pulling them out of the dryer. I was like, oh, well, this just doesn't get clean. How dirty are they going to get before I you know, continue to put them on my spit up baby? And I will say that, yes, my handle is Keds Economist, but I realized because that's a nickname I've had for a long time. I'm not, in fact, the chief economist of Keds Shoes, which someone did ask me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You, you do have to be careful with that kind of thing. Hey, another parenting hack. If you've got a spit up kid, tie dye. All right. So <laughs> you were starting to talk about objections and that's obviously super relevant because, again, as we record this, we have to deal with the practical political reality of this issue, which is that it has been the major hangup in the Build Back Better bill. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia has been very public in voicing objections to the Build Back Better bill, which he ultimately said no to. I'm, I'm taking it off the table. I don't want to do it. And it was largely because he did not like the structure of the child 
tax credit. He thought that it was wasteful. He thought that the amount of spending was inflationary, and he thought that it should be means tested. So I want to deal with both sides of this equation in the next few minutes. First of all, let's just talk about the benefit of the child tax credit. You and I were talking a little bit before we got on the air about the supposition and some of the research that's been done about what a good payoff this is. Even if you don't from a compassionate standpoint or from uh, some kind of a, hey, I can picture people who might get this as me standpoint, even if, if that doesn't resonate with you, people can understand long-term payoff of an investment. It seems like there is some evidence that investing in the child tax credit to keep kids out of poverty is a good economic investment for America. What evidence is there out there and how, how strong would you say it is? So this, I think we could go, we could do a little bit of storytelling and say that one of the origins of a fully refundable universal child tax credit was from a panel of the National Academy of Sciences, which is a kind of a multi-year expert panel of qualified, ex very, I could say, prestigious researcher, yeah, on child poverty to come up with a plan to to reduce child poverty in America. Like, what do we need to do to end child poverty? This was one of their flagship proposals: was that it was going to that this type of st stability of income, a fully refundable universal child tax credit, was one of the proposals that they had rallied around. I mean, and these are not political people; these are professors. These are people who are at research institutions, and they're basically scientists. And they said, "This is just, this is the most." this is one of the best investments you can make because the volatility of income of so many children's parents that this type of minimum level of stability, not sufficiency, but stability would be both would reduce child poverty on some mechanical level because it increases income, but it would provide stability for children. And then that report, which is obviously no fewer than 700 pages long, they have a chapter devoted to the consequences of child poverty. And I think it's important to just stop here and, and say, in no uncertain terms, poverty costs children for the rest of their lives. There's no, I mean, I, I know we like to think that America is a place where people can just pull themselves up by the bootstraps, but that's, that's not something that you can expect someone to do before they turn 18. So an example would be, it's been very well studied that food stamps, your monthly allotment of food stamp, doesn't last the whole month for a lot of families. It lasts a lot of the month, but often families who are on food stamps will have food insecurity and skip meals kind of like the last three or five days before the next you know, kind of disbursement of food stamps arrived. So researchers have found that children taking tests third grade, fifth grade, 10th grade on during those last three days, like the lean days, the days where you don't have enough food stamp money, their scores are lower. So yes, we can expect people to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and work hard and get a job. But the truth of the matter is kids do bad on tests when they're hungry. This is the type of effect that is just so dramatic for children and has such a long-term consequence. You do worse in school if you're hungry, if you, if you don't have enough to eat, and we, we know that this is the case and, and your grades affect so much of your life going forward because so much of what makes us a worker and makes us a successful high earning worker is path dependent on how we did at the first job and how we did at school and how we did at school before that. So we can remake ourselves, but that's a lot to put on an 11 year old. And so they have that type of kind of example of just 
if you are hungry, you do bad at a test. They've also found things like if you are hungry, you're less likely to go and that you have higher absences or more sick days. Those types of consequences are just one example. They've looked at high school grades, going to college, incarceration and arrest rates. All of those things are worse if you spend your childhood in poverty. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that long of a spell. It doesn't have to be four years. It can be two years. It can be one year. It can be two separate years. All of these things have consequences. So another example that I would I say might illustrate this for you is that they've also found that a pretty robust research finding is that children of parents who become unemployed are less likely to go to college, even when the parent recovers their job, right? Because there was probably a period of hardship, a period of grades suffering, and this can have a lot of consequences for children who maybe want to enter the workforce or don't think that their parents can help them afford college anymore. So when we talk about the consequences of child poverty, don't think that a robust labor market and a can-do attitude can necessarily fix all of this because that's asking someone who's a child to fix for deficiencies in their parents' income that affect them in ways that they're not really capable of managing. So that's why the National Academies panel came down so hard. So I'm not come down so hard. They're very dispassionate people. But that's why some type of minimum stability of income to stave off the worst effects of poverty by having something like enough food to eat or keep the gas bill paid so that you have heat in winter, right? That, that this type of sufficiency would help smooth out some of the rough edges. Unfortunately, the way that we measure and assess legislation in the U.S. makes it almost impossible to invest in children. Well, and that's, that's, I think, become really crystal clear in the current debate over the child tax credit, because what we've seen is an acknowledgement of the kinds of research findings that, that you just ran through. And there's an extension of that argument into, look, long-term, we know based on studies that getting kids more food, better health coverage, things like food stamps and Medicaid coverage, that they have better health outcomes later in life and lower healthcare costs. And since most of that dollar ends up coming one way or another from the federal government, has a, a, a lowering effect on, on future federal budgets. We know that problems with a decrease in women's labor force participation leads to all kinds of economic waterfall effects that we feel in, in the ability of, of taxpayers to pay their taxes. And again, that hits the federal budget. And when you run all these things through, you find that policies like the child tax credit pay off in the long term from a pure dollars and cents standpoint, but it's hard to show. And to your point, it's super long-term. It's not within what we do in federal budgeting or in in federal legislation, which is a 10-year budget window. What we do tend to talk about when we bring these kinds of issues up and when we debate legislation is things like inflation, things like, are we giving to the right people, people who really don't need it? So the idea of means testing. So I want to just quickly run through some of those arguments. First of all, what do you make as an economist of the argument that a continuation of the expanded child tax credit would be inflationary? Does that wash for you? No, not really. The, I mean, inflation has a lot of causes and and a lot of sources. What we have found, so first off, what we found for the six months that we had advanced payments of the child tax credits, is that families spent it on a lot of different things, right? So it would make sense as an inflationary pressure if 
they only spent it on the same good and it all went to the same good. And that good was difficult to supply in our consumer economy. But it, they spent it on so many, so many different things. Some people saved it. Some people spent it on food. Some people spent it on utility bills. A lot of the spending went to kind of fixed parts of the budget. So it's so to say that that would lead to kind of broad inflationary pressure is kind of a stretch for me because it's one, not that much money and it's not going, it's going to very diffused uh, places. And then second, I think inflation is very much a concern for a lot of households right now, but it's broadly thought that its current antecedents are supply chain issues and a sh kind of a very quick shift in the size and direction of broader consumer demand. We want different types of goods than we wanted two years ago, and we're not buying them in the same way. And there are lots of supply chain issues related to kind of both demand and worker shortages. I, so I, I will just say that, that the, the question for any policy is what, are, what is the problem you are trying to solve? Are you trying to solve child poverty? Or are you trying to solve inflation? If you're going to put it on the backs of children to not have enough food so that inflation doesn't have doesn't spiral out of control, I would tell you that the Federal Reserve Board of Governors is doing a very bad job <laughs> because that is that is the problem that they are intended to solve. And, and if the if the logic is we have to sustain child poverty in America because otherwise we would have to pay more for things. That's a that's a pretty incredible statement and also a pretty dismal reflection of our values regardless. Wonderful point. And I, it does kind of connect a little bit to the, the second thing that you, you heard from Senator Manchin and is a very relevant part of the debate, which is means testing or in some other way, having a, a bright line division or even a, a downward sloping People can't see me on video, but a, a kind of a fall off of the amount of child tax credit you get depending on your means. To me, that makes some intuitive sense to say some there's some kind of a level. Look, if the problem we're trying to solve here is child poverty, and if we're saying, look, a third of Americans at some point are going to fall below that poverty line, but it's unlikely that people who are way, way above the poverty line are going to hit that point in 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 rapid fashion. So maybe some kind of an income level limit would make some sense. How how do you think about that from an economic standpoint based on all of your work? Well, so two things. The first one's a little dry. I think the second one is maybe more interesting. The child tax credit, the first thing, dry thing, it is already refundable for people who have high enough income. So this $2,000 tax credit is something that rich children and frankly, middle-class children already get. So the question that we are asking with this child tax credit expansion is should we give poor children the same amount of money or more than what we give rich children or middle-class children, right? Because you, you, if you have a positive tax bill and if you have a child, you will get a $2,000 refundable tax credit for each of your children. And that phases out at $400,000. So the majority of people who got the majority of money were people who were making somewhere between seventy-five and one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, right? This was something that is already flowing to the top of the income distribution. The question is, does it? Should it flow to the bottom? Should poor kids get this money? Now, it's based on the tax liability of the parents. The second thing I would say is, 
there is a really unfortunate aspect of child poverty in America, and that's that not all parents are good. And if you needed proof of that, you could go down to Children's Protective Services or Child Welfare Services and see kids that are taken out of their home because of abuse or neglect. We don't all have the luxury of having good parents. So when we make public policy, right, we don't get to bat a thousand. There are trade-offs to the things that we do. And so the question is, how much do we need to punish parents who we don't like in order to prevent an investment in children? I mean, that's, that's the question. You, I, you can't look anyone in the eye and say, don't worry, parents are only going to spend this money well and only going to spend this money on their children. We know that that's not the case. The question is, what are you willing to risk for the reward of reducing child poverty? There's, it, America has 330 million people. That awful person in Joe Manchin's mind, he exists. He's out there. He's a parent who could benefit from it. But does he dictate policy or the 11 million children in poverty? That, that's the question. There's no winning. There's no eradicating bad parenthood. There's no making people who get our money perfect. There's just a risk to every investment. And the risk of investing in children is that you would benefit parents that you do not like. That is a question for policymakers, but I wish they would phrase it that way. Right. Well, that... <sighs> Boy, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it certainly resonates with me when you say, look, we've already got a policy that is giving money to people who probably don't need it as much. And we've already got a policy that's giving money to bad people, to bad parents, people who probably they're, they're unsavory in some way. And, and we, we don't want to help them per se, but do we want to punish their children? Because even bad parents tend to spend that money on things that benefit their children. Anyway, both of those arguments do make a ton of sense to me. At the very least, I think that this discussion is eye-opening about who it is we're talking about and really what issues are we talking about? Who do we want to help? And maybe the fact that the people we want to help are people who are a lot more like us than we are used to thinking about. And I find that incredibly valuable. So thank you, Dr. Edwards, for kind of reframing this whole question in my mind and, and, and for many people who follow you on Twitter. This is not the Keds economist, Dr. Catherine Ann Edwards, and this is Great Ideas. And thanks so much for being with us. Again, thank you so much for having me.